Chapter 3. Every Misconception a Shiny Pebble. Glimpsing Beautiful and Productive Extensions of Prior Knowledge. Donna moved among her students as they cut out the photocopied chromosomes from the handout. Unbeknownst to the students, there were 47 chromosomes instead of the more typical 46 for humans. And when students made matched pairs, they would find an extra chromosome, do a little research in their packets, and recognize that the karyotype was indicative of a person with Down syndrome. It was an activity that Donna's cooperating teacher used every year during the genetics unit, and she was glad to see her high school students engaged in the lesson. She knelt down next to one group who was having a little trouble matching the chromosome pairs, and she drew their attention to the patterns of light and dark bands. The size is more important than the shape, she said, and look at the alleles. She pointed to the light and dark bands along the length of each chromosome shape on the photocopied handout. Of course, it was not scientifically accurate, but it was an idea I had not heard before, and I was captivated. Every misconception I encounter is like a shiny pebble on the beach. I love looking at them, rolling them around, and trying to figure out where they came from. Donna's was not difficult to figure out. Nearly every biology textbook has an illustration of a length of DNA highlighted on a chromosome to represent a gene, and Donna, even as a biology major in college, likely took that representation and interpreted the dark bands of densely packed chromatin on the chromosome as exactly such a band. Further, she likely applied her knowledge of genetics in calling it an allele instead of a gene because she knew that in a chromosome pair, the gene might be coded slightly differently on each. This sort of forensic analysis of misconceptions is second nature to master teachers because in the process of unraveling the mystery of an idea's source, paths leading towards future understanding are also revealed. In Donna's case, this could be as simple as providing images of chromosomes under higher magnification to show that the light and dark bands are a function of the coiling of the DNA. Donna could also be pressed to investigate how scientists know where genes begin and end, and whether that information can be visually ascertained at all. To an attentive observer, Donna's use of the word allele as a label is a key to understanding her whole cognitive architecture around the topic of genetics. This is why I find it incredibly frustrating whenever I hear mockery of students' misconceptions, which happens a great deal more frequently in private teacher conversations than one might hope. When a student is sincere to us about an idea that seems absurd, we are being handed a map of their brain. A teacher who interprets sense-making as stupidity is committing educational malpractice. Sitting in the back of science rooms, I often get to hear the most wonderful misconceptions. One of my favorites happened in the back of a physics room during a lesson on sounds and waves. Students were given the task of answering a series of questions from the board and then constructing a concept map using a list of vocabulary words. They were permitted to work together, and one pair of students began to debate the meaning of the word mute. One student claimed that mute was a type of sound, while another said that it meant the same as quiet. It was not hard to envision the student's idea of a television remote broadcasting one type of sound wave that canceled out others. They each ended up making their own concept maps their own way, but even that brief exchange gave me insight into how some of them we're thinking about the nature of sound. Sometimes misconceptions take a while to bubble to the surface. In one classroom where students were developing models on flip chart paper to explain the dispersion of food dye and water, an interesting argument emerged between two groups of students. One faction felt that when the beaker of water turned a uniform color, the particles of dye and the water molecules were evenly mixed, 
as their model demonstrated with red and blue dots evenly distributed. However, the other part of the class felt that because food dye changed the color of things, it had actually changed the color of the water molecules themselves. I think about how my own high school chemistry teachers might have handled this, and it is difficult to think about any response that would not contain some level of sarcasm or derision directed at the students for believing such a thing. There is a misconception among some teachers that giving voice to a wrong idea in a classroom is harmful, as if it could spread like an airborne infection. Decades of cognitive and educational research have shown these fears to be unfounded. In this case, the teacher not only permitted a student-to-student discussion to occur in class, but also made sure to facilitate it in a way that gave each group an opportunity to question one another in a manner that furthered the conversation. When pressed by peers to explain whether or not they also thought that the dye was made of atoms and molecules, the color change group seemed to give ground and admit that they had not quite thought of that. When conversations like these occur regularly in every classroom, when the comparison of science ideas happens in open spaces instead of remaining closed away in private recesses of students' minds, those of us working to reform science teaching will know that we have made real progress.